Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show... Beware, your brain may no longer be the boss. At least not your conscious brain. We humans, myself included, like to imagine that we are rational, reasoning, self-aware beings. But there's a growing heap of scientific research that says maybe we aren't. Maybe we are acting unconsciously much of the time blindly following a set of impulses and biases and preferences that we don't even know about. And that is what we're going to be exploring today. But first, I am going to take a little test that's designed to expose some of those unconscious biases. It's called the IAT, not the SAT, the IAT, the Implicit Association Test. Anybody can go online and take this thing. Somewhere around 10 million people already have. And I am about to make it 10 million and one. Okay, so here I am at the IAT website, and I'm going to skip a few preliminaries and go right to the test. There's actually several tests you can choose from, and I have picked the race test. Click to proceed. Now let me describe what I'm seeing. It's a box in the center of my screen, and it's divided into two columns, one on the right, one on the left. The one on the right is labeled African American, and the one on the left is European American. And now I am being shown a series of faces flashing by of black and white people. And I'm supposed to sort these into the proper category by hitting a key on the right side of my keyboard if I want to put the face in the right column, African-American, or left side if I want to put it in the European-American column. So there's an African-American face. I'm going to click on the right, put it in the right column. There's a European-American face. I'm going to click on the left, another African-American face. And I should say that uh, the instructions have told me to move super fast, as quickly as possible. I'm not supposed to think about my responses. I am just supposed to click away automatically. All right, now for part two. Instead of being shown faces, I am now being shown words. Uh, And instead of being labeled European-American and African-American, the columns are good on the right and bad on the left. So I'm going to be shown a series of words, and I'm going to sort them according to whether they're positive or negative. So there's the word wonderful. I'll put that on the right under good. Joy, that goes on the right under good. Evil, that goes on the left under bad. Terrible, put that on the left. And again, just click away here until they're all sorted. All right, now part three of the test. And this is where things get a little more complicated. This time around, I have to sort both faces and words. And the instructions are telling me to put the African-American faces and the good words on the right and the European-American faces, the white faces, and bad words on the left. So black plus good on the right and white plus bad on the left. So there's an African-American face. I'm going to put that on the right. There's a European-American face. I'm going to put that on the left. There's the word terrible. I'm going to put that on the left. And the word joy. That's good. So I'll put it on the right. Evil, left, African-American face, right, a white face on the left, black face on the right. Great. Now, in the second half of the test, I am being asked to do all the things I did before, but this time everything's been reversed. This time around, the African-American column is on the left, and the European-American column is on the right. And instead of putting positive words with African-American faces... I'm going to do just the opposite. I'm going to put the negative words with African-American and the good words with the European-American faces. 
There we go. And now I'm done with the test part. And to finish up, I'm just being asked a bunch of background questions about myself, my age, my race, my gender, my views about race and politics, and uh, some personality questions. But I'm so anxious to see how I scored. I'm going to skip some of that and go directly to the result. And now the moment of truth. Here it comes. Your data suggests little to no automatic preference for black or white people. Wow, I have to say I'm I'm relieved. <laughs> okay, so what is all this about? Well, I'm going to introduce at this point uh, one of the people who developed this test, the Implicit Association Test. He is Brian Nosek, a professor of psychology at the University of Virginia. And he and his colleagues have been using this test and other methods for oh, about 15 years or so to investigate our unconscious or barely conscious biases, tendencies, blind spots, preferences, all of those things we may not be aware of but may play a role in our thinking and our actions. And when I think about the research, it's as though they've peeled back the self that we are all familiar with to reveal another self down there playing by its own rules, hidden away, out of sight, but possibly in control of a lot more than we'd like to think. And uh, that is kind of spooky, and I'm going to be asking Brian Nosick about what it means for us humans. But first I wanted to know more about the IAT itself how it works. Remember that it had me associating these good and bad words with both black and white faces. And Brian says, the key thing there is speed. It's measuring how fast I responded when doing those tasks. So, so Brian, I've just taken the IAT. In this case, uh, it was the race test, black and white. What are we supposed to learn from this? What we hope to learn from the test is how strongly do you associate those concepts in memory? How much do African-American and white American faces link to in your memory, whether you agree with it or not, just how much are they linked in memory to concepts like good and bad? You're basing that on how long I hesitated in pressing those keys when associating those value-laden terms with those, those racial categories, yeah? If I jumped on it and did it really fast, that shows that I do seem to have an unconscious association and if I hesitate, maybe I don't? Yeah, and the logic is very straightforward. The main idea is that it should be easier to do the same behavioral response, hit the left key, for example, when the things that go on the left key are associated in our memories. It's like doing the same thing. So if I associate, which I do, uh, white faces with good more easily than black faces with good, then I'm actually able to go faster putting white faces and good things together on one key than I am when the combination's the opposite, black faces with good things. Despite the fact that I would disagree with that consciously, it happens because it's in my memory. Uh, when was the first time you took that test? Uh, first time was in 1996 uh, when I was starting graduate school and Tony Greenwald, my colleague, had just invented the IIT the, the year before and we were just starting to do the initial tests. I did it on myself and the, you know, my first reaction in doing it, because what, what's stunning about the test is that you can often feel it being harder in one of the conditions compared uh, to the other. Right? Uh, it, it, the, you go so much slower and it's, it's stunning to experience it. And uh -huh. that's why we, we put it online because it was so surprising. But as I was doing it, I you know, stopped and looked at my hands. Why is it so hard for me to put black faces and good things together? What, you know, it must be something in my hands that's the problem. Or maybe it's some problem with the test. Maybe it's the order that I did it. Maybe it's how familiar I am with the images that I see or the words that I used. 
Uh, and so all these questions of, no, 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 it couldn't be in me. It's got to be something about the test were the first reactions that I had. And so I spent the next few years trying to see if any of those uh, could be the counter explanations. And each one that we rule out was more and more evidence of, oh, no, I have to take this seriously as indicating something about my own memory. Now, you're not at all alone. The majority of people, as I understand it, who take this test, at least in the United States, have the same general response. They tend to associate the bad words more easily with African-American, the good words more easily with European-Americans, right? Yeah, of the samples that we have collected, we have a large number of people have now done this, but we don't have representative samples of the U.S. or the, the world population. So we can't say this is what the average in total is. But what we can say is of people that have, for example, visited our website, and now that's you know millions of people, most will show the same kind of association that I show uh, to varying degrees, but we'll show it uh, like I did. Um, how do various groups stack up in this particular test, white and black versus you know negative and positive associations? Yeah, there is some variation uh, across groups. Um, and in implicit race bias, as we would characterize this one and, and other kinds of associations. In this particular one, what we find is that most everyone shows it to some degree. Anybody that's non-black, on average, tends to show a pro-white implicit preference on uh -huh. this, right? And I use the term preference in just indicating differential association. Mm -hmm. It's not conscious. It's not what people endorse. It's not necessarily what they would really believe when you say, what in your heart of hearts do you believe? And mm -hmm. say, no, I, mm -hmm. I don't believe it. <laughs> but it is in our memory, and it can have impact on our behavior. But but African-Americans, are, are they the reverse? Do they associate good with African-American and bad with uh, European-American? Yeah, so this was really a, a big point of debate in the early part of this research literature was, are they just going to show the opposite, right? Meaning that everyone just shows favoritism for their own groups mm -hmm. implicitly, right? Mm -hmm. We have more positive associations about mm -hmm. groups we're members of. Other people said, no, 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 it, they're going to show the exact same effect, Right, because African Americans and white Americans have the same cultural context. They're both exposed to negative stereotypes about African Americans and positive ones about white people. Uh, and so those are going to get encoded in memory, whatever their own skin color is. Uh, and it turns out both are right and both are wrong. It's about right in between the two. So African Americans as a group uh, show no preference either way on average, but there's a lot of variation. Uh, so about as many African-Americans show more easy associations of good with black faces as show more easy associations of good with white faces. Uh -huh. uh, and we understand that variation to suggest, and this is our, our speculation at this point, that both of these original ideas are operating. We get positive associations about being members of groups, about having family members that are more likely to be African-American if I'm black than white, uh, to have more friends perhaps that if I'm African-American that, that are black uh, than white. All of those are occasions for positive associations. Mm -hmm. But simultaneously, as an African-American, I am in a would be in a cultural context. I'm not, I'm not black, but if I were African-American, I'm in this cultural context that has all of these stereotypes and associations about black that I can't escape. I know them. I see them. I, whether I believe them or not, my memory doesn't care. All our memory is trying to do is make links from things that it sees in our environments. Because over the course of our evolutionary history, understanding what goes with what is very useful. 
right? Because if you see one thing, it predicts another mm-hmm. thing. And so the fact that we have uh, a culture and a, a media that is constantly sending out messages of these things are linked to these things, whatever they are, race or otherwise, uh, means that our minds are going to incorporate them, are going to embody that culture. So um, I think there were studies. I don't know if they're valid, so please take this with a grain of salt. But there was a tendency for black children to prefer white dolls. And it wasn't because they dislike black people, uh, uh, supposedly, but more because society has held up white as this image of perfect beauty. And that's what you want in a doll, right? Yeah. In fact, that it is, that is a real study. And it is a classic study in this area of research uh, that was done in the context of the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court case in the 1950s. Oh, really? Uh, and the work was done in order to show that uh, black kids are really confronted with a, a challenging environment and segregation really does change their minds too. Mm. Uh, and the, it, the effect is, is just as you describe it, black kids are then confronted by a, a white doll and a black doll asking which one's nicer, which one is more likely to have been bad, you know, all sorts of things. The dolls are identical except for skin tone. Many of them would say the white, white doll is better. Uh, and this was stunning for people at the time and still is stunning. It's both discouraging and encouraging to see is that uh, high school students now will post replications of this study presently uh, on YouTube. And so there are a number of YouTube clips you can find of, of people who have tried to replicate this classic study. Uh, and the, the stunning part of it is that uh, a lot of it still occurs. Three and four year old black kids today will show some of these same effects as were in the 1950s. Oh, wow. Now, people can't believe that, right? Because so much yeah, has changed. Yeah, it is surprising. It's really changed. I mean, we've got a black president and yeah. many, many black cultural heroes. We've got a lot of black people in prominent positions now, so yeah, should have changed by now. Right. And if you look at the landscape of race from the 1950s to today, yeah. it is a totally different landscape. Yeah. Uh, but what it suggests is that a lot of those lingering cultural stereotypes are not gone. They're in my mind, and they're in these kids' minds as well. Wow. So you've detected this sort of instinctive bias, you know, a tendency to associate negative things, in this case with African-Americans, positive things with European-Americans. Does that reflect a kind of racism or bigotry that's likely to play out in behavior in the real world? Or is this something that's so subtle that it really has no consequences? you know, out here in the world? Yeah, that's a very important question. Uh, and we wouldn't use the term racism or bigotry uh, in this context because those indicate, at least in how they've been used historically, as uh, something deliberate, right? Like, I feel that and mm. I don't like that group mm. and that's something I know and I use. Uh, in this context, they're, they're very ordinary, right? Each of the tests at our website, we're talking about race now, but there are tests measuring associations with age and with gender and with sexual orientation, with weight. Every one of those tests, I show the bias that we're expecting that that exists pervasively in the culture. So I test each one out on myself before we put it online. Say, oh, yep, got that one too. But it's stunning to have that experience over and over and over again and feel like, you know, what's going on with my own mind? About, you know, I study these about questions. About men versus women, about fat versus thin, about yeah. old versus young, about uh, darker complexions and lighter complexions, Arabs yeah. versus, versus others of others. any kind. Yeah. So if you went with my implicit mind to decide what kind of person I was, you would stay away from me 
because I have all of these biases, yeah. right? And so if I were prepared to then say, well, that's the actual me, right? I'm What I say I am must just be a lie. Then I'm sort of saying I'm a really sort of rotten person. Uh, but I don't believe that, right? Uh-huh. I, uh, what I believe is that my conscious mind is just as important, perhaps more important uh, than what all of these implicit things do. But what I can't do is just put aside and say that implicit stuff, who cares? It's irrelevant. I don't need to pay attention to it. It is part of me, even though I don't agree with it. Well, well, in your research, what influence then, whatever the person's explicit, that is sort of conscious orientation to these things, whatever their beliefs are, whatever their politics, whatever their feelings about race on a conscious level, what is the impact of what you guys call this implicit bias, this unconscious preference? Yeah, and there's a lot of research going on in many different ways to try to figure out how and when will our implicit assumptions or our automatic reactions influence our behavior in opposition to what our conscious intentions mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could give just a few examples that are sort of illustrative. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the, the kinds of ways that this is being applied is, is highly uh, varied and interesting. Uh, but one illustration... Uh, is is particularly interesting to me, which is the evaluation of resumes. Uh, so employers have to evaluate resumes all the time, and they do it very quickly, and they get lots of them. Uh, two economists in the U.S. Uh, uh, sent out thousands of resumes for many different jobs uh, across different sectors of the economy in a few different major metropolitan areas. Uh, and they set up a call bank, and they just counted how many callbacks do we get to all these resumes that we sent out. Now, what they manipulated in their study was the name at the top. Uh, So half the resumes, even though the same resumes, had names that implied that the person was white, Emily. Uh, And the other half had names that implied that the person was black, Lakeisha, or something Mm -hmm. like that. And then they just compared, how many callbacks do I get when the same resume has a white-sounding name on top versus a black-sounding name? Identical in every way except the name. Right. Oh, boy. The white-sounding name elicited 50% higher callback rates, five, zero percent more callback rates than the black sounding name, same resume. Yeah. Now they could have drawn the interpretation in their study that what we have is a bunch of bigots in HR departments and we need to get rid of them. That's not the interpretation they had of their study. They didn't include implicit measures like the IIT in their study, uh, but they had an interpretation based on implicit cognition, which is the name has a cue, is a cue, provides a mindset creates a frame for understanding what the rest of the resume means. And so if people have implicit stereotypes, implicit assumptions, implicit biases about race, then what they might be doing is seeing and understanding that the rest of that resume differently when the name at the top cues black versus cues white. Now, a researcher in in Sweden uh, has replicated that with Swedish and Arab names and actually gone back and got some of the HR managers who were responsible for evaluating those resumes Mm -hmm. to take an IAT uh, and found that the strength of their associations on that were predictive of their likelihood of of calling back the Swedish versus the Arab applicant. This is the holy grail here, relating the results on the IAT to a real-world behavior and action that they took. Yeah. Have you done much of that? There's lots of that research happening now. Our lab does some of it uh, and many other labs are pursuing it in in lots of different ways. You know, we're emphasizing race here, 
uh, but we have many different kinds of applications. So you can imagine the same test uh, that you just did, uh, but instead of black and white faces, you have concepts Democrats and Republicans, right? So how much mm -hmm. do you associate mm -hmm. Democrats and Republicans with good or bad? Or you could take out good or bad and put in self and other. Mm -hmm. How much do you associate Democrats with yourself and Republicans mm. with yourself? Uh, so one of the recent uh, studies that we did on this is to – and uh, Carly Hawkins, who is a graduate student uh, that works in my laboratory, uh, has led this project, uh, is to look at political independence. People who say, I'm independent of politics. I'm not partisan. I don't belong to any of these groups. That doesn't mean anything to me. And we measure their implicit preferences for Democrats and Republicans. What we found is that those implicit political partisanship – predicted their ultimate judgment that in a partisan way, right? People who say I am independent, but show an implicit preference for Democrats tended to vote for Democrats, tend to support Democrat oh, wow. democratic ideals, tended to do things uh. that in all other ways make them look like Democrats uh -huh. and same things for Republicans, yeah. suggesting that that conscious identity of I am independent may be a real conscious identity, right? They may really say, I want to be objective. I want to be free of political mm -hmm. bias of everything else. But somewhere in there, they're a partisan, mm. uh, whether they recognize that influence or not. So as I went through the IAT test myself, um, I answered questions about my views, the ones that I think I have. Yeah. And of course, they I, I answered that I had no preference whatsoever based on race, that I'm an even-handed guy. Yeah. But in most cases, do people's self-perceptions match up with their behavior on this test, or is there a huge disconnect? It depends on the topic. Uh -huh. uh, so some topics elicit very weak relations, uh, and others much stronger ones. So an example of a very weak relation is people's implicit preferences about age. What we find in this test is that everyone old or young, not everyone, but most people, uh, show an implicit preference for young compared to old. Uh, it doesn't matter how old you are. Uh, and it doesn't appear to weaken mm. as we age. Mm. That young is just an ideal for many reasons, mm -hmm. right? Young is associated with lots of things that we like. Sure. Health, vitality, beauty, everything else. Mm -hmm. And old is associated with a lot of things we don't really like, right? The most prominent one being death. Uh, and so those associations are probably very hard to escape in our implicit minds, even though explicitly we could say, well, that's not a basis for disliking old people. Right? I, I love my grandma. I love my grandpa. You know, I'm, the fact that they're closer to death than I am in terms of aging shouldn't make me dislike them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we have all of these conscious corrective processes that we can use to decide how much we like old people or particular old people. Uh, that we don't get to use necessarily in terms of how they're, they're embodied implicitly. Uh, by the way, I should mention uh, that people uh, listening to us who want to take the test, and I would urge people to do it, answer all the questions honestly, so it uh, gives Brian more data to do his <laughs> studies. It is at implicit.harvard.edu, the website. And then you can choose among these tests and take them, and it only takes a few minutes, and it's kind of fun. Yeah, and there I should mention that there are three different sites that you can go to. The first is the demonstration site, uh, which is where you went, and you can select your own from a list. Uh, a second option is the research site, where you register an identity, and then you get assigned to lots of different new tasks, the things that we're developing now, new studies that we're doing. Uh, and so that's sort of a way to sort of see the, the new research in action. Uh, and then there's a third option, which just, uh, the, you know, this is the world premiere, uh, which is Project Implicit Mental Health, 
We just launched this uh, site last week uh, and have not done any press release on it at all. Uh, and it is using these tools in one of the areas that has been most popular application in the recent years, which is on issues related to mental health. So you can measure associations of yourself with happy or sad, uh, of anxious or confident. Uh, you can measure associations about con conceptions of therapy and other things. What are you hoping to learn? Uh, well, the, the work that's happening in that area is really looking at how much does automatic thinking influence our mental health. Uh, states of well-being. Uh, my colleague and, and spouse, uh, Bethany Teachman, uh, is the principal investigator uh, of that site. Uh, and she is a clinical psychologist studying anxiety disorders uh, and how our thought processes, our automatic reactions to things can maintain uh, problems related to mental health. You'd have to distinguish cause and effect, right? Which is a tough no. one, right? I oh, mean, yeah. say I associate all kinds of negative words with myself and I also happen to be depressed. Yeah. I would blame the association on the depression rather than the reverse. And and you you may be right, and it may be also the other way. <laughs> How right? do you work so, it out? How do you tease those apart? Well, we don't try to cause people to be depressed. I and mean, that's the thing we haven't yet <laughs> tried to do, and we hope not to actually try to do that one. Uh, but what has been done is to actually make people less depressed by changing their associations. Uh, so you can retrain people's associations, uh, and it will have some impact on their behavior. Seriously? It's amazing. You mean just, just in this sort of little mechanical task of associating certain kinds of words with certain people, yeah. you can actually change feelings? So the craziest thing that Bethany and, and other people in her subfield are doing right now is seeing if just learning how to associate, for example, spiders with safe rather than dangerous, just learning to associate that with a computer test can reduce phobic symptoms about spiders, right? Just doing a computer test, right. right? So we can make therapists irrelevant, right? She's, she's working herself out of a job, uh, by thinking that perhaps, and it will not replace therapy. I mean, I should, uh, I'm saying this more facetiously than really, uh, it, you know, therapy has all sorts of other things that happen, but a compliment or an addition or another tool in the therapy toolbox could be just retraining our implicit minds to not fear things that we shouldn't be fearing as strongly as we do and to associate is, ourselves with good. And this is nothing as extreme as saying, taking out a nice harmless spider, letting it crawl on these people and get used to it, but just associating words, yeah. right? Yeah. With spiders yeah. on the computer, on the yeah. computer screen. Yeah. Safe. Wow. Safe. Safe. So right. the implication, if you're right, and it's a huge if, right? Yeah. Is that all those politically correct people all these years who said, mind your language, say nice things, you know, let's get rid of, harmful and uh, derogatory kinds of speech and clean it all up may be right after all, that maybe this can influence behavior? Certainly the words that we use uh, has an impact on what ends up in our minds. So yeah, the, the core part of what you say there, which is that how we use language and what those words are linked to will ultimately influence what, how we end up thinking about those groups is, is accurate. Wow. I mean, I know I'm, I'm, I'm choosing a kind of controversial example, policing of language by yeah. people who say we really need to talk a certain way if we want to act a certain way. Yeah. But they might not be all wrong, is what you're saying. They're, right. They're not all wrong in the same way that the, the sort of the idea of just smile, even if you're not feeling good, right. is not all wrong <laughs> about feeling better. Right. Put on that brave face. You know, it's better to look good than to feel good. And then maybe you start to feel good later. 
there is some truth in those. It's not a comprehensive truth. It's not the only thing one needs to do or has to do or anything else. But there is something true in it. Wow. Wow. Now, um, as I went through that test, I answered the questions we've talked about already, what my self-perceptions regarding the issue of race were, who I am, you know, demographically speaking. But there were another set of questions that made me curious. Uh, asking me to assess my personality. Yeah. You know, I'm someone who likes to start arguments. Am I afraid of uh, uncertainty in some situations? Uh, do I like abstract thought? Those are some of the kinds of questions you guys ask on this test. What are you getting at there? Yeah, we have a large bank of, you know, 600, 800, 1,000 questions, and each person gets a random selection of 10 or 12 of that bank. Uh, and the reason that we have those is because there's all they're connected to all sorts of other psychological personality or otherwise properties. And we want to see, does implicit bias of different kinds relate to any of these things, right? Are people who are more extroverted showing more or less implicit bias for different groups than others? Are people who uh, dislike uncertainty, who like things really organized mm -hmm. and ordered, more likely to show it or not? Mm -hmm. you know, we don't have necessarily this grand theory of how all of these things all work together, but it certainly is uh, important for us to understand if these things are linked to variables besides just what my gender is, what my age is, and otherwise. And so that's why those are there. So with um, you know, 10 million, upwards of 10 million people having taken this, or should we be more accurate by saying 10 million instances of the test having been so taken? So we have about 13 million completed tests, uh -huh. uh, but the average person might do two. Okay. Uh, so we might be nearing, at this point, 10 million people. Individuals. But, but we don't really know. And tons of that. info, assuming that people are responding um, honestly, and there's no reason for them not to since it's anonymous and none of their, their name is not known. Um, can you give us some examples of some correlations you've found, you know, that just sort of paint a profile of people who may tend to have this bias, may not, who might have certain kinds of biases and not others? Yeah, well, the, there, there is variation across individuals, uh, and it is very interesting. It, often it depends on what the topic is, uh, but there are a couple of generalities that we've noticed, and one is that uh, on average, even though the effect is small, uh, women tend to show weaker of the dominant stereotypes or biases that we see than men do. Uh-huh, so, so less biased. Average, yeah, less bias on average. On average. Um, but to say, oh, okay, so here's a big difference between men and women would be saying like, uh, okay. exaggerating the phenomenon, right? This is a very small difference on what otherwise is a big effect. But it's consistent, and it's consistent across various topics. How about different uh, ethnic groups? Do some tend to be more biased than others toward other ethnic groups? Well, the hint that we have is that uh, people who are multiracial themselves tend to show less bias across a variety of topics Surprise. than people who are not <laughs> multiracial. Yeah, and so it actually elicits a very interesting question, uh, which is why. Uh -huh. uh, and so one, uh, sort of maybe the more obvious hypothesis, is that people who are multiracial are more likely to uh, not see these distinctions right. as mattering so much. You would expect that, to, wouldn't you? Right, because yeah. you know how, what's their identity? Mm -hmm. And sort of trying to understand mm -hmm. what their identity is all about. Uh, and then, and that that may translate across topics that are not race, because they even show this tendency in age and in uh, gender and in mm -hmm. other domains. So they may just say, "Look, social categories just don't matter so much." I got it. Yeah. The reverse is also possible, which is people who are less biased 
draw less distinctions between groups, may be more likely to identify as multiracial. That's true. May be more likely to claim that, yeah, I am more of a person with multiple origins. Whereas someone who really cares about those distinctions may feel more of a need to say, no, no, I'm just in this group. Well, how about um, people on different sides of the political spectrum? Yeah. Is there a difference? Do they skew differently as far as bias goes? Yeah. The, the, these are the findings that get me in the most trouble. Uh, <laughs> but yes, there hey, is a you're consistent just, one. <laughs> you're just quoting the numbers, right? Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's what I say. Uh, okay. And um, the the finding is not surprising at all, which is, Bleeding heart liberals tend to show less bias uh, than the not bleeding heart conservatives. Um, uh, and, you know, it's easy to understand. What's shocking to me about this particular finding is that it's the most controversial finding that everybody already knows is true. Right. There isn't much doubt that this is the case. Uh, and conservatives will make fun of liberals for being bleeding hearts. And that's why I use the term deliberately, right? Is they overemphasize how much we need to love each other and be careful. And you know, we all throw mm-hmm. flowers or whatever mm-hmm. it is that mm-hmm. conservatives will characterize as liberal and liberals will say, well, yeah, all those bigot conservatives, right? And they will make all those claims. They don't this. So, you know, there's, there's all sorts of, you know, funny rock throwing, uh, about this particular issue, but it still is controversial, uh, a finding, uh, but I should emphasize that the differences in attitudes about race, uh, particularly, are bigger in what people say their attitudes are than they are implicitly. Uh-huh. The political differences are. So let me say that again to yeah. make sure it's clear. Yeah. Uh, liberals and conservatives who are white are more different in their racial attitudes in what they self-report their attitudes to be than in their automatic responses. Uh-huh. Right? So conservatives are more willing to report that they prefer white people than liberals are. Uh-huh. Liberals show somewhat stronger implicit biases than they report, uh, much more so than conservatives do. So there's a flip side to uh, a reverse way to consider this particular finding, which is conservatives might be being more honest in some way, if you were to interpret the implicit stuff as a lie detector, which it is not. Yeah. But that's a, a spin that people have put on this, which is uh, conservatives might be more willing to accept their automatic response as their belief, uh-huh. or at least they're more aligned between their automatic response and their conscious beliefs. Yeah, let me, let me try to sum up what I think you've just said, that liberals do tend to show less implicit bias in this test. Yeah. Uh, racial bias and that sort of bias, right? Yes. Uh, Then do conservatives. But on the other hand, they tend to rate themselves a little more highly than the results show. I mean, as as less biased than they actually are. Right. Liberals as a group, especially strong liberals, are very resistant to saying that they favor Mm -hmm. any group over Mm -hmm. any other. Mm -hmm. So their self-report is strongly egalitarian. Uh Strong conservatives don't have that same resistance to the same degree. Still, most conservatives would report being egalitarian, uh, but more are willing to say, well, I have have a slight preference for white people Mm -hmm. or black people. It's just how I feel. How about, um, you know, aside from liberal versus conservative, how about different parts of the country? Because that was one of the questions I answered also that uh, I was supposed to report my zip code so you guys can figure out, you know, where I live. Yeah. Yeah. And we do see variation uh, by region. Uh, some of, you know, we've done U.S. analyses and we've done ar- around the world analyses because our website actually operates in 22 languages as well. And so we uh, are able to look at how these things look cross-culturally, which is fascinating. Um, but we do find that the uh, diversity of the per- person's particular living 
area where they live mm -hmm. uh, is related to how much implicit bias they show. So hmm. people who live in more diverse neighborhoods uh, tend to show less implicit preference for white over black uh, than people who live in less diverse neighborhoods. Uh, on average, there's lots of other factors that mm. are varying and lots of other influences mm. and other things. But, uh, but on average, that appears to be the case. Hmm. Which of these correlations uh, between various kinds of bias and various um, demographic, socioeconomic, et cetera, categories, which surprised you the most? Uh, I would say the one that surprised me the most uh, is the persistence of positivity towards young, even as we age. It, we all like young. Yeah, and it does not decline. Uh, so what we see in, when people self-report their attitudes towards young people and old people is that people across the age span as they get older will tend to say more positive things about older people mm -hmm. and perhaps some less positive things about kids these days. You know? <laughs> uh, and so what you see, at least in our data, among people who are 60 and over is that they report liking young and old people equally. Uh -huh. No, no difference in their preference. Whereas young people say, no, no, I, I like young people, <laughs> right? They're very willing to report that. Uh, but implicitly, there's no difference between people over 60 oh. and people who are young. So their automatic reactions all show this bias toward youth. Yeah. yeah. And so there's, there's two parts that might be playing into that. One might be just the general positivity of youth. Youth is good. Uh, and all of these other associations like we talked about earlier. Another part of it might be something that has to do with the aging process itself. One of the things that we lose as we age, among the many things we lose, uh, is the ability to inhibit an automatic process once it starts. Inhibition is really important because we have all kinds of automatic processes happening, right? That's, that's what helps us sort of navigate without having to think too I much. thought age gave us the ability to restrain ourselves. So it, <laughs> in, in perhaps in some ways, but in other ways it doesn't, which is once we have something automated, we will uh -huh. tend to do it. And once that gets activated, one of the things, this is uh, from some very recent research, shows that uh, older adults have a harder time stopping that process once it starts. Wow. And so what we might be seeing... In what our, sorts of things are we talking about? Well, so uh, how many times does one say, oh my God, I can't believe my grandfather said that, right? As just stuff starts coming out the mouth that really shouldn't have been said in that context. Okay. That in okay. other contexts, we would right. have been able to edit out right. because we recognize the social circumstance. Don't say that. Right. Uh, uh, so, you know, that's just one, one sort of silly example, but it's, uh, it's this idea that we have in ourselves a lot of mechanisms that help try to manage our automatic lives. Uh, and without those things in place, a lot more of this stuff might come out. Mm -hmm. So it's possible in our test that older adults do feel even implicitly more positive toward being old and older people in general, uh, but they're not able to inhibit what is the dominant response mm. that yet young is good. Mm. And so they're showing these sizable effects still because they're losing this ability to try to manage their automatic responses as they happen. I see. I see. Um, now, another thing your test can sort of reveal is what I called earlier a disconnect between what people think they feel and at least that unconscious kind of judgment that this test is built to measure, yeah. right? I'm really liberal. I have no preference for white or black, and yet in the test, a heavy preference, let's say, for white over yeah. black. Yeah. Um, how self-deluded, and, and, and that's probably uh, stretching it to say self-deluded because obviously we're referring to differences between conscious and unconscious, 
But what is the gap? Uh, self-descriptions and results on this test in general. Is it big? Yeah. Well, uh, I guess you would say it's moderate. Okay. Uh, but this, and you, you're getting into a very important uh, philosophical question, but also a psychological one that's really at the core of what this area of research is about, which is how do we know ourselves? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, the uh, my colleague, Tim Wilson, uh, who uh, did some of the original classic research with this with a fellow named Dick Nisbet, um, they demonstrated that we don't observe our mental operations. We don't observe what's going on in our minds. We just experience the output, right? We get some, we have some conscious experience, but we don't know where that came from, right? If I say, can you look in your mind and tell me where your feelings towards uh, black people are? You don't, that doesn't make any sense, right? I I don't know where to look. Uh (laughs) If I say, can you look in your mind and tell me how you decided what you were going to have for lunch today? Where is that in your mind? Can you show me that process? Well, I can't localize it, but I might be able to tell you the process. You can tell me the process. <laughs> well, you can tell me what it is you decided. Uh-huh, right? You yeah. can tell me your experience. I could that. tell you which options I weighed and why I yeah, went for one. Yeah, and so you have some experience about reasoning through yeah, that. Yeah. But what the research evidence suggests is what actually has happened is you made a decision and then you reasoned about how it is you got there. Mm-hmm. That the decision was made by processes that you don't observe in your own mind. It shot up an experience of, oh, I want a sandwich. And then you thought about, well, okay, wh- wh- why would I have wanted a sandwich? Oh, okay, well, and here's some reasons. And what would I want it on it? Well, I consult sort of my history and I identify the things that I would have wanted on that sandwich. Uh, but mostly the processes themselves themselves are happening outside of our awareness at all. And now you're referring to some pretty ingenious experiments that have been done that actually show people making a decision, acting on a decision, and then sort of rationalizing it post facto. Right. In other words, having the conscious decision-making process actually follow after the body, in a sense, has acted on, on the decision. Yeah. And, and can you describe those experiments, some of yeah, the most so famous here, ones? Yeah, here is a simple one that's great. Uh, and, you know, the title of their paper is Telling More Than We Can Know, mm-hmm. uh, which is we are very inventive at coming up with the reasons for our behavior, <laughs> yeah. even when they have nothing to do yeah. with the reasons for yeah. our behavior. So one of the studies that they did, and a very classic uh, illustration, is they had people come in uh, and evaluate of a few different pieces of pantyhose, pairs of pantyhose. So you need to, this was done in the seventies. Pantyhose mattered then, I guess. I don't know if it mattered. Uh, But they, you know, they had five pairs of pantyhose on the table. And I said, just check each one and evaluate them. Tell us which one's the best and everything else. Uh, And so people went through and they evaluated each one and they, and they tended to select, you know, option D, the one at the end uh, as the one that was best. And they asked, okay, explain to us why. And then they would talk about the shear and the lining and how it felt and the color, all these other things. And then the researchers said, well, that's sort of interesting that people tended to pick the last one. And they gave all these reasons because all mm. of the pantyhose were, in fact, identical. <laughs> same pantyhose, same company, got them out of the same box, put uh, them all out. Uh, but what they knew is that people tend to pick the last thing that they look at. Uh-huh. But no one said, well, it was the last one I looked at. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. They did not know that that was influencing their decision making And they process. came up with reasons they other than that. Lots of reasons that they generated. Oh, to say boy. Why. Oh, boy. Well, 
you know, this work that you do, which is on what you call implicit cognition, right? Right. Which we used to just call what unconscious or subconscious processes. Yeah. Implicit is a more inclusive term that doesn't necessarily commit it to being unconscious. And oh. so that's because there is some debate in this field about how much of this stuff uh -huh. is really unconscious in the way that we would say that's inaccessible uh -huh. versus stuff that we don't recognize, that we don't notice, that we don't talk about. Uh, you know, so there are many other ways where we could have some access mm. to this. So, for example, uh, Colin Smith, who and I have collaborated on some projects where he's trying to see how much is this implicit response related to our gut feelings. Right? Good question. Is we just we have some experience. But I would have might, thought they were the same. We might reject it. Yeah. And he does show that there is some relation. Right. So if gut feeling is something that we end up experiencing, mm -hmm. right, we have some conscious mm -hmm. access to that, even if we don't have conscious access to the origins of it. Right. It does at least elicit some experience that we can report about. Yeah. Uh, and there is there is some evidence hit with him and, and others that have found that there that. That, that might be part of how these processes manifest in a way that we know something about, that uh -huh. we can see their, their effects. Uh -huh. uh, there are other findings that suggest, well, some of this stuff we just don't even know about at all, and we won't have an experience. But you know, the, that's just a, a debate in the field. So implicit allows us to accept all of those possibilities without having to specify yet, because we, we still don't know. But you still contrast it with explicit, which is the, yeah. those things that we really feel we are you know, conscious of, have control over, yes. uh, deliberate over, that kind of stuff. Yeah. That rational part of us that imagines that we, we sort everything out in a kind of reasonable fashion and then make a decision. Right. That's not implicit. You and your fellow psychologists, cognitive scientists, uh, neuroscientists, and others have been building, you know, this, this picture of um, humanity over, you know, recent decades. And there's a lot of research aimed at this that says it looks like we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that we are acting. And we're acting on certain principles, but we're not really fully aware of them, and we don't really work them out and calculate and reason through to a conclusion. I mean, how unconscious, and I know I'm using the word that's not quite right, that's how right. unconscious are we, do you think? Well, very, I guess, is, is, is one way to answer it. Uh, you know, there, people have uh, given a number. We are 99% uh, unconscious, you know. I've, oh, really? That, yeah, but it's just throwing a number out right. there, right? And right. So yeah. like, well, I don't you know. You can't well, measure that. How, how would you count it? Right. But most, I guess, a way to say it is most of our brain activity happens without us knowing about it. Mm-hmm. Right? Sure. And that may not be so surprising, right? I don't spend any time uh, thinking about how to stand upright mm -hmm. when I'm standing upright. I, my muscles right. have to do all sorts of complicated things. There's a huge amount but, you wouldn't want to bother your conscious mind. Yeah, with, yeah. Right? Monitoring my breathing, <laughs> monitoring my how you know speech perception. Sure. Right? As listeners listen, they don't spend any conscious effort changing those electrical signals that right. are transduced by their eardrum uh, into the signals that get recompiled into morphemes and phonemes, the building blocks of language, right? They don't spend any conscious effort looking up each word that we say right. and figuring out what does that word mean? What does that word mean? But our brains are doing that. Well, right? we, we've always known that we don't consciously work out all that sort of back office housekeeping yes. stuff, right? Right. But we do imagine that we exactly. were the stuff that matters yeah. that involves. <laughs> Some would say that stuff matters. That but yeah, okay. <laughs> Excuse me. But we do work out the things that involve sort of. Uh, we we like to think we we work out the sort of things that involve uh, major decisions that involve yeah. morally uh, important 
outcomes, right? Right. right. Uh, that involve and, interpersonal matters. Right, our social behavior. Our social behavior. As, as social beings, right, we size up people up consciously, right? Right. We decide what to do yeah. consciously, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's really where this field has been pushing into trying to look at the limits of that. Uh, John Barge is the most prominent uh, psychologist that has been, you know, advancing this. Uh, the conscious mind isn't doing much uh, idea. Uh, and he has just um, remarkable examples of it, right? So the, the one of the latest ones coming out of their lab uh, is that uh, people who are holding a warm cup of coffee judge other people to be more interpersonally warm <laughs> than this. people who are holding a cold cup I've of coffee. I've heard this, yes. That's absurd. Yeah. Right, it's totally absurd that that the my physical feeling of warmth would translate to how I size other people up. And world affairs are determined by which side of the bed you know some leader got up on. Yeah, right. <laughs> and framing, right. So another classic uh, example, you know, Danny Kahneman, who's a psychologist, won the Nobel Prize in economics for this kind of work, showing that uh, how we're thinking about a problem, right, in terms of what we stand to lose versus what we stand to, to gain can fundamentally change our decision. Mm. Now, we don't consciously think about what we stand to lose, what we stand to gain. Mm -hmm. You can just put people in that mindset without them even realizing it, and their decisions change. And you say, did your decision, was it because you were thinking about what you stand to lose instead of what you have to gain? They say, what are you talking about? That didn't enter my calculus. Mm. Well, yes, it did. <laughs> uh, and so the, um, you know, there, at the same time, there's pushback, right? Because our conscious minds matter. Right, we can self-regulate. I, for example, going back to the early examples, I have all of these implicit biases in my own head. I'm not acting on them constantly. Right, I'm not out there in the world constantly doing things that embody those stereotypes. So how is it that I'm managing not to do that? Well, part of it is probably that I have motivation not to act on those all the time, and another part might be that I have pretty good self-regulatory strategies, mm. things in my own mind, conscious and otherwise, that help me monitor and manage how it is these get expressed. But if, um, oh, let's say if you had a split second to make a decision, not yeah. time to consciously think about it, I'll pick a horrifying example, but you're driving down the street and uh, there's a black pedestrian on one side and there's a white pedestrian on the other and there's a truck coming straight at you and you've got a veer right or left. Should I trust you with your results on the IAT to uh, right. to be to well, be race neutral in that decision? <laughs> so this interview has taken a dark turn. Now I'm running over pedestrians regardless of their color. I don't like this at all. But you know, you're right. Those are the that is a illustration of a situation where these kinds of things might matter regardless of my conscious efforts to regulate. And, and you're working on that though. How much do they matter? I mean, that's that's yeah. really going to be the question that yeah. everybody wants to, to answer. Right. right. Uh, and where the research is now, and the, again, this is tentative in the sense that, you know, people are really actively working on this. This is you know, mm -hmm. cutting edge stuff. Uh, but there are factors that appear to be important for understanding when our implicit processes are going to influence our behavior versus less likely to. So for example, when I have to make a decision quickly versus when I can deliberate about it, automatic response, no surprise mm -hmm. when we're quick. When we are tired or stressed or preoccupied, right? We don't have the same energy to devote to trying to self-regulate. Or maybe angry and out of sorts? Yeah. Uh, so anger is an interesting one. So the emotions are more complicated mm. than you might guess. Hmm. When you're happy, you're more likely to use your implicit processes than when you're not. Oh, go with your gut, so to right, speak. Right, because when you're happy, all is good. Your trust. So you trust yeah. the things that are happening. Right. 
Anger might be like that because it's a very approach-oriented emotion, but it might also be the, there are negative emotions that elicit the opposite, right? Sadness means stop, right? Things are not going well. And so people that are sad, some research shows that they actually stereotype less than people who are happy because they're not trusting anything at the moment. You know, their, their affect is saying, oh, things aren't right. And so they might uh -huh. be more likely to deliberate uh -huh. about this particular situation uh -huh. and not make as biased a judgment. Hmm. I'm not advocating that we make everyone miserable, <laughs> but it, the emotions are complicated, right? Uh, so, you know, being stressed is a little bit more straightforward. Having a lot of high stress, having distraction, mm -hmm. those things make it harder for our mm. conscious minds to, to dominate, right? When the decision-making situation is complex or ambiguous, Right? We can't reason through, well, I know I like these things on my sandwich and I don't like those things. Right? That might be a relatively straightforward one to make sure that my conscious desires uh, are, ones that are, are the ones that end up on, uh, on, on my plate. Right? In-N-Out Burger is perfect for making sure my conscious intentions are what I get because there's only a couple of things to decide. Right. Right. Right? But when I go into uh, Cheesecake Factory right, where there's 10,000 things on the menu and I have, oh my God, how am I possibly going to decide what I want here? Well, then heuristic processing, automatic processing might actually be more likely to help me get to a decision because I'm overwhelmed, right? The decision-making context heuristic is... Heuristic processing. Yeah, it's, just a, it's a very related concept to implicit processing, okay. right? You just use simple rules. The rules of thumb, yeah. 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 Uh, and so you, the, it makes it, it simplifies the problem. So go with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of times heuristics are useful, right? Mm. They're a stereotype is a type of heuristic, mm. right? It's a simple rule of thumb. Oh, men are taller than women. Okay. And I'll just use that as my basis of judgment rather than actually look at the man and the woman to see which one is taller. Right. Oh no, men are taller than women. Uh, I'll be wrong sometimes. Uh, <laughs> but as a rule of thumb, uh, it's it's a heuristic that people might use. Well, some would argue that these biases are heuristics, right? Yeah. So, you know, people would say, yeah, you know, I showed a slight um, tendency to associate the bad words with black people, the good words with white people. It's because, you know, if you watch the news, you see more people being arrested for crimes or black or something like that. All I'm doing is just, you know, I'm just a statistical machine here. It's just an odds game. This yep. black person is more likely to be a criminal, which uh, I could bear out by looking at the racial composition of our prison population. By the way, these words aren't mine. I'm just saying yeah. that's what a person could say, yeah. that all they're doing is a kind of rule of thumb. Yeah. Do you think that's fair? Uh, it is fair in the sense that it is accumulation of experience. Mm -hmm. Now, is that experience itself biased? Right. Right. Would be a different question. Uh, for example, if, uh, if news media is more likely to report a crime when an African-American commits it than when a white person commits it, then what ends up, even if it was just basic statistical calculation in your head, would be shifted as a function of how the media presents right, it. Right, right. Uh, but it, is, it does raise a very important point about this, which is implicit bias itself is not bad, right? It's not bad. No? Because we need it. We need to have implicit biases or we would not be able to function. And it might not be the implicit biases that we've been talking about. No. Right? We may not need to have implicit racial biases, but we need to have biases because biases is what simplifies our behavior. We, our world is too complex. It is ambiguous. We do need to fill in the gaps. We do need to make assumptions. Uh, and we need to do those things because if we didn't, we would never get through the day. Right? I need to be able to assume what's in 
the particular uh you know, sort of canister in my refrigerator is what I expect it to be, right? Even yeah. though my wife could have switched it in the middle right, of the night, right? right? I make that assumption because it's, it's very likely to be right. Mm-hmm. It's still an assumption. Mm-hmm. It's still, you know, all of these other things, but I make that very quickly, mm. right? When my back hurts, I call my doctor, not my mechanic, mm. even though my mechanic might have a great solution, <laughs> right? But I'm not going to call her because my doctor is the one that I'm reliably going to go to for this kind of things because I have assumptions. I have associations. I have biases. Right. Now, people say, well, that's a different kind of bias. And yes, it is a different kind of bias than race bias, but only because we have a different moral judgment. Right. The, The in terms of the cognitive operations themselves, they don't necessarily need to be different. Right. They can be formed in the exact same way. They can manifest in the exact same way. They can have the same kind of influence on our behavior. I'm more likely to hire the doctor than the mechanic for this kind of job because I assume that the doctor is going to be better at it. Just like I'm more likely to hire the white person for the job over the black person because I assume that the white person is going to be better at it. Now, there doesn't need to be um, the conscious parts of that, right? When we think about bias in the normal sense or prejudice in the normal sense is we think this explicit stuff, hatred and you know the awful things that, that uh, led to the civil rights movement and all sorts of other mm-hmm. stuff that comes along with it. Mm. All of that stuff is true and important, but it's not necessarily part of what happens implicitly. Uh, and so implicit biases are fundamental They're, We're not going to get rid of them or else we're just going to lose a lot of what our cortex is. Um, but we don't necessarily want all of them and which ones we don't want is the, the moral decision-making that's separate from the science of, of and, all of this. And operates. you, you believe not only based on your own experience, but based on your, your research that we can fully override implicit biases that we determine are bad ones, you know, like, like what could become racial bigotry. Yeah. We can just absolutely do well, away with that uh, by conscious choice. No, uh, I don't think that that's ultimately going to be the case. Uh, it might be, uh-huh. uh, but there, you know, there, there are a couple of strategies. One is we can shift these. These aren't immutable, right? New experience can change prior learning. Uh, and so we can, for example, be moved into a different kind of environment that's more diverse. We can form new associations that uh, replace or, or supplement or complement or oppose the associations that we have in our mind. So they are amenable to change. In fact, you talked earlier about a clinical exercise where people were uh, you know, getting yeah. over sort of phobias by associating yeah. nice words with spiders, right? Right. Can you do that with racism yes. or implicit race bias? Uh, and so there are a number of researchers that have been showing just exposure like this, even on a computer task, can shift these biases, if only wow. temporarily, but wow. perhaps in a cumulative way could shift them dramatically. Wow. Right. And then imagine that on a grander scale, right? Changing how it is that people interact, the kinds of interactions they have could shift these dramatically. Then you can, even if you don't get rid of those associations, there are mechanisms for trying to regulate them, right? We talked about some of these things of people having some degree of control over uh, being deliberate about their planning, about doing particular things. And if they're in important decision-making contexts, even shielding themselves from information, right? We talked about the resume study uh, as an example. Well, one easy solution in that is to eliminate the names from Mm -hmm. resumes. Yeah, make the choice. Why do we need to see the name? And any yeah. other racial indicators, obviously, yeah. you know, the person where the person lives might also be another giveaway. But right, yeah, yeah there are poten- lots of potentially yeah. potential things to yeah. to try to to deal with. And obviously, in a hiring process, you eventually, in most cases, will meet the person. 
But even there, there are practices one could think about of saying, okay, if this has a potential influence my behavior without me knowing it, right. how should I set up this decision-making context so I just don't even have the opportunity to use it? Well, here's a good example. Um, and it comes, uh, actually, I think I know about it because of Malcolm Gladwell in the book Blink. Yeah. He wrote about the IAT, the Implicit Association Test. Yeah. He also wrote about... Um, orchestras. Orchestras, exactly. Yeah. That's where I was going. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is a classic example in organizational behavior. Uh, and, and Malcolm uh, wrote about it as well, uh, which is the introduction of blind auditions was shown to have a dramatic impact on gender diversity in orchestras. So the person is auditioning for a position, say, as a violinist in an orchestra. If the uh, the panel can see them, they're more likely to give the nod statistically to, to men over yes. women. But if they can't see them, women do just as well. Isn't That's that right? right. That's yeah. right. And so now people have started to institute this, have the auditioner sit behind a screen. Yeah, yeah. So two economists at Princeton did an analysis of the shifting patterns of blind auditions and orchestras. It used to be very unusual. Now it's the norm. Like almost all, all the major orchestras, I think, except for two in Germany, uh, use blind auditions for an wow. important part of their process. Wow. Right? It's not the whole part. Well, of that's process. good. Uh, and the, the rates of women in orchestras has risen dramatically as a function of when the orchestra st went to blind auditions. Wow, wow. Uh, and, you know, the thing with, with relates to all of the other stuff that we've been talking about is when you ask the panel members of these different orchestras, you know, are you using gender to decide? They're saying, what are you talking about? Right. And, and so they're curious too. Why is it that we don't, aren't hiring any of these women, but they're coming up with reasons. Well, they're not sounding as good. Mm. And what's amazing about this is it's quite possible that their experience of how they sound is different when they can see them versus when they can't. Right. Because they're the, just like the name creates a frame for understanding the resume the person's gender identity that they see right mm -hmm. there might be a frame that changes the experience of the piece of music as they perform it. Absolutely. I did an interview with Paul Bloom, um, who you yes. might know at oh, Yale, sure. right? And he talks about how um, our experience of pleasurable things or unpleasurable things is conditioned by our expectations, by our ideas about the thing. Yeah. So that knowing that it's, say, an expensive wine that we're drinking makes it taste different yeah. than... Right. It would if we thought it was a cheap wine. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah there's a lot of that. Now, I, I, I understand that you've also been studying implications for policy. Yeah. Uh, and I, we just spoke about a policy there in, in orchestras. So there's right. a lot of implications for making policies more colorblind, say, if we do it just right. Yeah. But I have a bigger question about policy and politics. Our democratic system is premised on the idea that we all know what we're doing, right? That the, an informed electorate makes decisions based on its own interest and that uh, they're rational decisions. What if we are, as I'm, I'm getting the feeling we are, you know, these sort of robots much of the time, <laughs> subject to all these implicit or unconscious or gut motives and, and feelings, you know, what does that say about democracy? Are we in trouble? Uh, no, I don't think it does. You know, I, I think it's, it's a very good question, but I take the opposite view, which is the ability for us to discover these things about ourselves, how much we are automatic and robot-like, is in fact the illustration of our control, hmm. right? Other organisms don't have this opportunity hmm. for this self-reflection, for this self-discovery, and then to decide how they want to reorganize their environments in order to make themselves what they want to be, right? So we have this amazing opportunity for control at a distance, 
right? So I may not be able to control myself in the moment, mm -hmm. right? Let's assume the, the worst case scenario for lack of control, uh, right? Which is these automatic processes are influencing me. I got all these implicit biases. They're shaping how it is I think and behave and act in the moment. But what I still can do is say, well, I want that to change. So what can I do to change the conditions of my environment so that these automatic processes that I can't control in this moment will change next week, a month from now, a year from now, whatever it is, right? And so we can plan. That's what in conscious experience is so wonderful because we can plan and decide things 15 steps in advance. So you do believe in consciousness. You're not ready to throw it out completely. Oh, no, yeah. And say it's I, always I, just a rationalization of stuff that bubbles up from the deep subterranean unconscious. Yeah. It's not just that. It's not just that. We, so there is an executive committee that can, <laughs> can override what's coming. Right. Well, you know, we don't really have any clue what consciousness is. You know, we've we've, uh, you know, people in our field and others have written about it a lot and it's, it's a hard problem. Uh, and we, it may not be one that we can solve easily. But well, if, if there's... You, I'm not asking you to explain the physiological origin of consciousness, yeah. but you and I in this conversation are, you know, our conversations premised on the fact that there is a difference between things we do without thinking about it and yeah. things we do while thinking about it. Yeah. Right. So we'll call that thing, that latter thing consciousness. Yeah. And it is different from the unconscious thing. Yes, it is different. And it does give us opportunities to invoke some control. Mm -hmm. I think the what our research suggests uh, is that people overestimate its influence, our conscious mm -hmm. intent and effort, mm. uh, and have the possibility of missing information about how the other stuff operates. And so if we're confident in our conscious minds, overconfident in our conscious minds, and we're missing other influences on our behavior, mm -hmm. then our conscious values may not always be aligned with our behavior. And that's the gap, I think, the sort of the practical uh, normative gap that the, the science can be informative about, which is how do we align our values? Whatever our values are, it doesn't, you know, and it matters what our values are, but for the purposes of, of what I'm talking about, the, the question is how do we align what we want to do with what we actually do? Mm. I have a couple of implicit or explicit associations with those two domains, conscious and unconscious. And I just yeah. want to bounce my perceptions off of you. I think these are commonly held ideas. Unconscious or subconscious or, or you know, a more subtle word, um, implicit, that part of our mind that does a lot of our thinking for us is kind of dumb, kind of simplistic, kind of bases what it does on, you know, almost Pavlovian conditioning, right? The conscious, on the other hand, is subtle, is nuanced, is multivocal. I weigh a lot of options. I have different voices talking to me and I'm arbitrating between them. Do you think that's true or not? Uh, yes and no. Okay. Uh, which is always the most frustrating and accurate answer <laughs> simultaneously. Uh, and the, you know, so the, you know, the Freudian unconscious was very smart. Yes, uh, crazy, exactly. But smart. Right. It was calculating. Uh, it was, yeah. it was actually, it had its own conflicts that it was working out. Right. It was very much like a conscious mind. Yes. Just invisible to right. us. Right. And yeah. so that one, you know, in, in modern psychological science, that one died out and was replaced by the dumb unconscious, yeah. which was, Exactly as you're describing, very simplistic, doesn't know what it really what it's doing, is just responding to conditioning as it happens. Uh, and that certainly was the dominant view of uh, the unconscious into the, sort of the mid-1980s. Um, 
I think the view is getting more complicated now because the unconscious processes that we have can do some pretty complicated stuff. Um, the most prominent example of that is work by this fellow at Dijksterhaus, who's in uh, University of Amsterdam. Mm. Uh, and he is arguing that for complicated problems where you can't really do the calculus yourself, like which house should I buy? And there's more dimensions than you know how to consider. And I know how to consider, you know, I tried when I was buying a house to create a spreadsheet mm. and use that to decide <laughs> that was pretty stupid. <laughs> uh, it didn't work out. Uh, what ultimately happens, he says, is that if you let your unconscious do it, it will figure it out and make a better decision than if you try to go through all of these different factors that are much too complicated to parse. Well, this was part of the argument in, in Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, too, that the, yeah. the unconscious can do pretty amazing things. And I was yeah. left thinking, so what good is consciousness? <laughs> yes. And, and on that, I think it's, it's these things that we were just talking a little bit about uh, before, which is this ability to imagine realities that don't yet exist. Uh-huh. Right? The ability to simulate. Mm-hmm. I would like a reality that is this mm -hmm. or think about the past with counterfactual. If, if this had happened, then these things right. could have happened. Uh, that ability allows us to think about, okay, how can I get there? How can I set up the conditions of my environment, the conditions of my life, the things that I want to do, right? This aspect of planning, uh, is an amazing skill. Uh, and mm. you know, we can plan in coordination. We have both the ability to plan and we have this amazing social ability to communicate. Mm. So we could build things like space shuttles and send them to the moon and then decide, oh, no, we don't want that anymore and shut down the entire program. Well, we can do amazing things and then stop doing them if we decide to stop doing that. And all of that is because of this ability to look much further ahead than what's immediately in our present. And most of our unconscious or our automatic processing deals with the immediate, right? What we're faced with right now. And I have reactions in order to help facilitate what's right now. What's two days ahead is not something that a beetle thinks about, but we do. Huh. So we're not back to the Freudian idea of an unconscious that is so sophisticated that it's actually thinking about past, present, and future, right? Right. We still have, it still has some limitations, and that's what our conscious brain right. is good for. And it's informed greatly by uh -huh. our past, right? All uh -huh. of that experience sure. is what builds sure. in how to deal with the yeah. moment. Yeah. But, you know, all of that storage and all of the things that are, are relegated to the unconscious are there in order to help us survive in the present. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is a great skill. I'm, you know, I'm so glad to have my unconscious <laughs> uh, because. I couldn't do the things that it does mm. uh, consciously, mm. right? Our consciousness is a very limited resource. Mm. And so I want to be able to reserve it for all of these things of trying to come up with new ways to think about a problem. So as, as a guy who's observed all of this, thought about all of this, studied it for years, people might think you, you might become so circumspect and so wary of any kind of instinct of your own that you'd be almost paralyzed. But it sounds like you're a guy who's trying to optimize, right? <laughs> yeah. Assign what's good yeah. to the unconscious or the, the, the implicit and let the explicit or conscious part of the brain do what it's best. Yeah. Is, yeah. That what you, is that how you I, relate to your own self? I, I like that description uh -huh. uh, of optimizing, you know, <laughs> because, and you're right, the, to the extent that uh, we, tr you know, if I were to frame this as, man, our unconscious is a problem and we have to deal with that, then it would really be putting me in a very tight position, mm. which would be 
okay, now how am I going to deal with comprehending speech? Mm. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. Well then how am I going to deal with the very simple things of right. deciding uh, which restaurant to go to? Oh, I don't want to prejudge those restaurants, even though, you know, what we do, mm-hmm. we're not harming people. That isn't a moral wrong that I decide to continue to go to restaurant A rather than restaurant B mm. because I had a better experience today. Uh, even though it's a prejudice in some way that we would talk about prejudice, right? sure. bias sure. in some way. Uh, but no, it's, yeah. it's not one with moral implications. Uh, but yes, so this idea of optimizing is a, is a good one because it's how do we maximize the extent to which uh, my, what I intend to have happen, the values that I live consciously are, end up embodied in how I respond automatically as well. Well, Brian, thanks a lot. This has been consciousness raising. My pleasure. <laughs> we usually refer to it as unconsciousness raising, but, you know, <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> Brian Nosick is Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Virginia. You can learn more about his research and even participate in it by going to implicit.harvard.edu. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. If you've missed any of our shows or want to hear them again, you can always visit our website at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week.